Mark chapter 14. Uh, starting at verse 43. Just as he was speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, appeared. With him was a crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Rabbi, and kissed him. The men seized Jesus and arrested him. Then one of those standing near drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Am I leading a rebellion, said Jesus, that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I was with you, teaching in the temple courts, and you did not arrest me. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. Then everyone deserted him and fled. A young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. So if you're joining us for the first time this morning, welcome. Welcome online if you're joining us. If it's the first time you've been back because of COVID, welcome as well. And we're in Mark's Gospel, Mark chapter 14 and 15. We're taking our time, we're going very slowly through these last two chapters of Mark's Gospel as we journey towards Easter. And if you've joined us for the first time this morning, Mark chapter 14, verse 43, down to verse 52, is our passage, and it's a dark passage. If you're at the theatre, if you're in a film, if you're watching this played out in some setting, the, uh, the lighting would be dimmed at this point. The mood would be one of uh, sobriety, it would be one of seriousness. There's a phrase in this passage that comes up three times, verse 43 verse 47 and down in verse 48 as well. It's this little phrase, swords and clubs. And as it is repeated three times, verses 43, 47, 48, it, it's building up in terms of pressure, significance and importance as well. Look at verse 48 when we read it for the last time. What are you doing here, says Jesus, with swords and clubs? Uh, some people use this passage to say this is talking about warfare. This is a passage that says Christians should never go to war. And what a topical topic that is to look at. We won't look at that this morning because I don't think that's what this passage is about. But it is about this. There is a clash between two kingdoms. The kingdom of the world and the kingdom of God. The kingdom of the world and the kingdom of of God. There are two sets of priorities, not just in this passage, but throughout the whole Bible. Two kingdoms, two rulers, two sets of values, two lots of motives, two sets of priorities. And we're going to quickly look at these three points, the two kingdoms that interact in this passage, in our hearts, in our world, and throughout the whole of human history. Let's begin with Judas. Judas, who represents the kingdom of this world. Judas and the kingdom of this world. Look at sentence 43, please, from Mark chapter 14. Mark tells us that Judas appears. Judas is a, the betrayer that we met last week in verse 42. It's interesting, verse 44, he's not mentioned, but that title once again is given to him. Judas the betrayer, and he comes with a band of brothers whose hands and arms are not empty, because they've got swords and they've got clubs. They're expecting that there's going to be trouble. And so they've come with a, 
a suitable sized force, a crowd of people that uh, the numbers would be in their favour, like any military person would know. It's, a, it's an overwhelming force, and their hands are not empty. They've come prepared for what is going to happen, they expect. There's going to be trouble, there's going to be a battle, there's going to be a physical set too, because they want to lay their hands on Jesus. Now, in the Bible, swords and clubs, the sword especially, is not just a, a metaphor for warfare. It's a metaphor for sign of authority, and it's uh, more than someone's ability to kill. It's more important than that. It's got more weight behind it than just used in battle, like David and Goliath, something like that. Look at Romans 13, or think about that. Romans 13 describes the importance that God has given to human authority structures, governments, uh, prime ministers, kings, queens, and so on. They have designated authority from the king of the whole world to uh, model in good ways his loving rule and reign. Sometimes they do it very poorly. Rarely they do it very, very well. But the power of the sword is more than warfare. The power of the sword in Bible speak is the ability that a human authority structure has to compel behaviour to make people do, to encourage people strongly to do what you want them to do and what they don't necessarily want to do themselves. There are at least three ways to do that. You can do that through military force. You can think not too far away where military force is being used to compel a people to come under an authority structure that in no way represents the loving authority of King Jesus. So military force is a way of compelling behaviour. You can do that by financially turning the screws. That's another one. You can put people under great pressure to do what you want, to compel behaviour. You can also do it through political power. You can make rules. Some wag on Twitter this week that I spend very little time on, perhaps I should take even less, but they said, interestingly, just a few years ago, we were told not to travel five miles away from our home. We were under lockdown, walk for an hour a day and so on. Now, due to petrol prices, we can only, we can only afford to drive up to five miles away from our home. But you know what I mean? That that's what happens. There are three ways to compel behaviour. And, and this imagery of the sword that you read in the New Testament and the Old Testament as well is, is a picture of uh, authority structure to compel behaviour. Now, the kingdom of the world that Judas is a picture of as he comes with this band of brothers with, with hands are, are full with swords, always has the sword at the top. It always has power at the top. It always has uh, self-motivation and self-rule and self-priorities at the top. And that's why, with their understanding of power and authority and of how the world works, they come prepared, verse 48 and 49. Jesus says, am I leading a rebellion that you come to me with swords and clubs? Am I leading a, a kingdom in a way that you understand? Do you think that my kingdom is just like the kingdom of the world? Now, verse 48 and 49 are very interesting sentences. This word rebellion is significant. This word rebellion is, do you think of me as some sort of revolutionary? Do you think I'm leading an uprising, militarily, politically? Is you th do you think that's what my kingdom is about? You can go as far as to say, I think, do you think that I'm a terrorist? Do you think that I've come to overthrow, overthrow the Romans by whatever means necessary? Is that why you've come with swords and with clubs? That shows, paraphrasing what Jesus is saying, do you really think that? 
you've got no understanding of my kingdom, of my person, of my heart, of my mission. If you think, Judas, as you lead this band of brothers towards me, that that's what you need to come against my kingdom, you've not understood me at all. My kingdom is a revolution, but it's in no way the revolution that you think. I'm not about the sword. The sword is the kingdom of this world. My kingdom is completely different. My kingdom will turn the values of this world right on top of their head, right upside down. It won't be easy being part of my kingdom, says Jesus. Don't ask Judas, ask Peter. That's the second thing I want us to look at. Judas represents the kingdom of the world, swords and clubs and power. But just ask Peter about the difficulty of living in the kingdom of God or under Jesus' kingdom and his rule. So what will Jesus' kingdom be like if, if the world can be divided into two rules and, and two kingdoms? Well, there are three places at least you can look at it in detail to see Jesus' manifesto and his kingdom. You could go to Matthew chapter 5 to 7. That's called the Sermon on the Mount. It's a very well-known passage of the New Testament. You could just flick back a few pages in Mark's gospel. You could look at chapter 8 to chapter 10 and Mark is explaining Jesus' kingdom and his priorities. Because of time, I want to read to you just six sentences from Luke chapter 6. This is what Luke records for us about Jesus' priorities. They're, they're familiar sentences. This is the priorities of Jesus' kingdom, and it's nothing to do with the sword. Jesus says, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you, when they exclude you. Jesus says, but woe to you who are rich, for you've already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when all men speak well of you. There's a man called Michael Wilcock and, and he wrote a very helpful book explaining those passages and it's a quote of it, it's on the screen that you can uh, read through with me please as you listen in. It says, in the life of God's people there will be a remarkable reversal of values, an upside downness to Jesus' priorities in other words. Christians will prize what the world calls pitiable and suspect what the world calls desirable. In other words, what the world puts on top in God's kingdom will be on the bottom. What the world looks over and through and is just uh, ignorant as and seen as an inconvenience, God will raise up and he will prize. It's the upside down nature of the kingdom of Jesus. The world prizes power and success and reputation. Do whatever you need to do to get those things and do whatever it costs you to hold on to those things. They're all that matter. Jesus says, weakness is the way. If you're poor now, you will be exalted. If you suffer now, there's a day coming where you'll suffer no more. Rejection and exclusion, that is a pathway for people who put their footstep in mine. It's the way of the cross. It's the way of the cross. And it's difficult being part of the kingdom of Jesus. As soon as you hear those things, you think, hang on Jesus, I think you've got that wrong. That's too difficult for me to follow. But Jesus says there's no small print. It's not uh, easy to live in the kingdom of God. 
It's impossible to live like that. I mean, look at verse 47. Look at what Jesus is saying here. One of those standing near drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. In John's Gospel, John chapter 18, John tells us that that person with the sword drawn is Peter. Peter, the one who struggled to get his foot out of his mouth, sadly. But Peter, who so accurately and helpfully depicts me and maybe you as well. Peter has heard from the lips of Jesus the teaching of Jesus about the kingdom of God, about how hard it is to follow him. He was there hearing it from the horse's mouth, so to speak. And yet what are his instincts when the kingdom of the world comes up against the kingdom of God? He wants to fight like the kingdom of the world. And then Jesus says, sentence 49, the scriptures must be fulfilled. Don't fight like that. Don't do that. I mean, Jesus could not have been clearer. As I say, no small print. You know, at the end of a radio advert, when they're paying for every second of airtime, the person delivering the, uh, the monologue, the man or the woman, they, are we okay? We right, just need some help. The person who's delivering the monologue, they suddenly speed up and they go to two or three times the speed at the very end and it's hard to kind of slow down and to hear what is happening. Jesus says there's no small print in the kingdom. Chapter 8 to 10 of Mark's Gospel says this, My kingdom is not of this world, it's completely different. Listen to what Jesus says about the difficulty of following his kingdom. Whoever wants to come after me, he must take up his cross and follow me. Jesus is not speaking very quickly here. He wants us to hear, he wants us to understand the cost it is to follow the saviour of the world. If you want to be first in my kingdom... Well, you need to be the very last and the servant of all. Jesus says, I'm not going to repay evil with evil. I'm going to overcome evil with good. Jesus says, I'm going to give up my power. I'm not going to show it to the world. I'm going to give up my wealth so that you might become rich. I'm going to give up my reputation. I'm going to let my name be mud. I'm going to let people malign me. I'm going to give it all up. And that is how I'm going to change the world. Now, there's a, a book that came out a few years ago by a super writer called Tom Holland. In 500 pages, in a book called Dominion, he's a, he's a non-Christian man who's got a very keen intellect. And he looks at the history, the whole of the history of the world, not a bad effort, for 500 pages. But what he finds again and again, as a non-Christian man, is looking at the evidence, he says, I'm convinced that this person called Jesus Christ is a real historical figure, and I'm convinced that he led a revolution, and I'm convinced that it's turned the valleys of the world upon their head, and without Jesus, our world would look very, very different. And I am convinced, says Tom Holland, that the teaching of Jesus, the words of Jesus, the, the life example of Jesus, who died and who rose again at the first Easter, I'm convinced that he has remade and revolutionised the Western mind. We cannot look at science without seeing the influence of Jesus. We cannot look at uh, gay rights and human rights without looking at the influence of Jesus and the dignity that all men and women have. We cannot look at social discovery and see the influence that the values that Jesus modelled and taught have had. The kingdom of God has changed the kingdom of the world. But it's very, very difficult to live in the kingdom of God, says Jesus. Because we're all like verse 47. We're all like Peter. 
And we all, as Christians, like to do a very difficult thing, which is to straddle both kingdoms. I was talking to someone recently, and describe it a little bit like every Christian, at some point in their life, will try and put their feet on two paddle boards. And that never ends well. Because you then do the splits, and you actually you find yourself in a perilous position of being on neither. Jesus says, following the kingdom of the world is difficult. Because in our hearts, we want something of power. We want something of money and what it gives. We want to enjoy success, and we long for recognition and approval in a very deep way. But when the kingdom of God dawns in your heart, when the Holy Spirit begins to change your heart and your values and your priorities, you come to a point in your heart when you say that Jesus is Lord. The affections, the priorities of your heart, they, they get reordered, they get shuffled like you would shuffle cards in a pack and Jesus becomes number one, right at the top where he belongs. We say it and sing it with children, but it's exactly the same for adults. It is difficult living for Jesus, but listen to the priorities that Jesus has. When weakness and suffering and poverty and rejection when you think of those things as something you want to run from, when you come to Jesus Christ, when you experience his grace, when your heart is strangely warmed, when Jesus impresses his importance upon you like a weight upon your chest and upon your heart, you see that weakness is the way. It's the way that Jesus has changed individuals and how he's changed the whole world. My power is made perfect in weakness, says King Jesus through the lips of the Apostle Paul. When you're weak, it's the time when you grow the most in the economy of God. It's when you're weak, you come to grips with your real treasure. It's when you're weak and under great pressure, you see where your real identity lies. I mean, why is it that Christians, they can earn lots of money? They can be brilliant businesswomen, brilliant businessmen. They can have power, they can have recognition, but it's something they hold on to very loosely. Why is that? Because they can see through it, they can see through the kingdom of the world and they understand the kingdom of God. What do I mean? Look, if you're trying to save yourself, if you're trying to live for yourself, if you're trying to rescue yourself and your, your career is going very, very well and then your career is threatened, rather than getting a, a salary raised, you know you're going to get a salary cut. If you're not a Christian, if you're trying to save yourself, if your reputation is absolutely everything, if you've mortgaged yourself to the hilt, if you're under great pressure because money is what uh, is number one in your heart, and then that gets, that gets challenged, you know that that's going to get diminished. It will crush you because that's where your identity and hopes have been placed. You can love money too much. You can love power too much. You can love status. You can need it to justify your own existence, as someone has said. But if you're a sinner, if you know you're a rebel, as God has revealed that to you, if you know you're a sinner who's been saved by the grace and kindness of the Lord Jesus Christ displayed on the cross, then, then you're free. You can lose money and it's really hard. It's challenging. You make hard choices, but it won't crush you. If you're struggling with recognition in the world or at school or at college or at university and your name is now treated as muck and mud, it will hurt, it will wound. There will be hard times, but it shouldn't crush you. 
because you've got a new identity. I mean, it's not the end of the world because money is not what defines me, so I can give it away generously. I want to give my time away. I want to give my resources away because they've been given to me by a father who loves me. And so I want to give it away because they no longer define me. Jesus is saying in my kingdom, in the kingdom not of the world, but in the kingdom of God, there is the source of real treasure. There's a real identity. There's real power. But real power comes not when you think about yourself, but when you come under the loving authority of King Jesus. And then you put other people's interests before your own. Then you learn that weakness is the way. That you know that it's better to give than to receive. When you reverse places with people, so it's more blessed to receive than to give. And the way to love is to serve and be the servant of many people. That's how Jesus had changed the world. But it's a very difficult path to follow. It's the way of the cross. Because in my heart of hearts, I'm sometimes like Judas. I'm very often like Peter. I'm very rarely like Jesus. But it's the kingdom of God. And so where on earth do you get the power to live like that if we are Peter-like or sometimes we're even Judas-like in our spirits? You need to look to the very end, thirdly, finally. Look at the end, verse 50 and into 51. Verse 50, everyone deserted him. Everybody deserted Jesus. Verse 51, we're told about a young man who was a follower of Jesus, but so intent on saving his own skin that he's so willing to run naked through the streets, run out of the garden. Nakedness in the Bible is a shorthand way of saying shame, disgrace. Think of our first parents, think of Adam and Eve in the garden. They were ashamed, weren't they? So they wanted to hide their nakedness. They wanted to make coverings. But this man was so afraid, cowardly, we could even say, of owning the name of Jesus, that he would rather take on the disgrace of nudity doesn't matter who sees, even if my friends see me, I'd rather take that hit to my reputation than be associated with Jesus. Now, why is this little story there at the end? I mean, we could put a line through it, couldn't we? We wouldn't gain any more information. It's very important that it's there. As a man called N.T. Wright, he, he writes very helpfully on the Gospels and lots of other topics. He says, by Mark recording this little sentence or two, verse 15 into 51, this uh, theme of shame that appears, Mark wants us to remember another garden. That's what he says as we come around the Lord's table. You see, in the garden there was a person who's under great stress, Jesus. We thought about it last week in the preceding passage. There's someone, there's a, a true human, a mature man, who's Jesus Christ, and he's under great temptation to turn away from the cup of God's wrath. That we thought about last week is, is the appropriate, measured, settled response to a loving God to all that's wrong in the world, which is our sin and its consequences. And Jesus looks into the very cup of God's wrath, and yet he does not draw back. But there was another garden where there was a couple, Adam and Eve, and in their disgrace and in their temptation they failed and so, and so Mark records the temptation of someone to own the name of Jesus and who would rather flee in disgrace and it reminds us and helps us to, to connect with two gardens the first garden the garden of Eden and also the garden of Gethsemane when Adam and Eve when they fled 
They were blocked permanently from returning to the presence of God because of their sin by a cherubim, a, a warrior of the angel, the angelic host. He had a sword to say, you can never return back into the loving presence of God, the pure presence of God, until your sin is paid for. Notice the theme of the sword. You cannot return back into the presence of God unless the sword is taken for you. You take it and then you'll be destroyed or someone else needs to take it for you. Friends, there is the power to live in the way of the cross. If you follow King Jesus, if you look at Matthew 5 to 7 this afternoon or Luke chapter 6, if you reread Mark chapter 8 to 10, if you look at the priorities, the manifesto of the kingdom of God, what it means to follow Jesus, and you see Jesus as the great example that you're just going to follow him, it will crush you. If you see Jesus as an example, it will be uh, the end of yourself. It will destroy you. But, but if you see Jesus as your substitute, if you see Jesus being crushed for you, if you see Jesus as taking not just the sword of the world, but the sword that represents the righteous, righteous measured, appropriate uh, anger of God against all that's wrong in the world, if you see him as your substitute, and there in the grace and power and gospel of God are all the resources we need to live in the kingdom of God. Jesus is not just an example. He, he's shifted us out of the way. He's taken our place. And the cross is the place of the greatest reversal and the worst business deal there's ever been. My daughter shared this with me. A, a super talk was given at YPF at uh, King's Church, Chesington on Friday night. And someone described it as the worst business deal ever. Jesus takes all of our sin, he takes all of our rubbishness, all of our poor decisions, all of our brokenness and sadness. He takes all of that and then he gives us everything in return. What's in it for Jesus? Very, very little. All we have to offer to Jesus is our own sin. Everything Jesus gives to us is his own righteousness. He doesn't just top us up, he doesn't just bring us back to zero, paying the penalty we deserve. He gives us entry back into the garden because he takes the sword of God. When you see that, that Jesus has changed places with you, when he's taken your punishment, when he's taken the punishment of the cross, you can look at your wallet, you can look at the value of your pension pot that's plummeted in recent months, and you can say, this is not my real treasure. I can give it away. It does not define me. Difficult decisions ahead, but it does not define me. Being a citizen of the kingdom, you see, it changes the way you look at your money, it changes the way you look at your reputation. People can say what they like about me because Jesus has given me a new name. But it is hard. You can be generous with yourself and your time because you're no longer trying to build a self-identity that's based around you and your efforts and your work. But if you're a citizen of the kingdom of this world, I said this was a dark passage. I said that if you went to the theatre or, or saw this on TV and it was a, a film, the lights I think would be darkened and the, the volume of the soundtrack would become lower and more sombre. If you're a citizen of the kingdom of this world, if you're living for yourself, if you're spending your time and resources upon yourself, you're not living under freedom. You are living under bondage. Jesus Christ came not to build your reputation, but to change the world. He was a radical, but power is not at the top. 
When there's an earthly revolution, you see, the status quo is always just reinforced. The rich get richer and the poor always get poorer and more marginalised. But if you're building a kingdom for yourself in the kingdom of the world, this passage and the whole Bible says it will crumble and only the kingdom of God will grow. It says in a very sombre way that your days are numbered. Run into the kingdom of God while you still can. Run into his loving arms and embrace. Because it's a place of life. It's a place of freedom. It's a place of joy. It's a place of delight. And it's only possible because of this table that points us back to the garden. The first garden where the sword of God banishes people from a holy, loving God. It points us to the second garden, the Garden of Gethsemane, where the sword will be taken on the one who is under great temptation to let the cup of God pass him by. And yet he said last week, not my will, but yours. Whose kingdom, friends, are you living for? 